Golasu. I imagine a lot of you will remember that the false facsimile of compassion or the near enemy is grief, is despair, hopelessness, depression. And so among the four measurables, the natural antidote for that whole mindset is empathetic joy. In Tibetan, it's simply gawa, or mudita in Sanskrit, which means simply delight. But it does mean empathetic. And so whether the, the sadness, the grief, despair, and so forth that one experiences, whether it's genuine in the sense of simply coming right out of your own mental afflictions without any particular unpleasant thing happening to you, just emerging right out of your mind, or whether it is a response to some depressing news or an experience or what have you, either way, uh, the cultivation of empathetic joy can really serve as a helpful remedy for that, to restore the balance, the emotional balance of the mind. Bear in mind, uh, my favorite English mantra for the moment, what we attend to is reality. And especially when we get caught up in some kind of a, a despair, depression, and so forth that is oriented towards some memory or something taking place in the world or what have you, but some, some virulence, some event in the world, then what this means is the mind has kind of got, gotten almost like into a cramp, like a spasm, like it's locked in. And it doesn't have that malleability. It can't do what a muscle should be able to do, and that is go left, right, up and down, so forth. It's just locked in. And that's what's happened to the mind. The mind has gone into a spasm. Or Paul Ekman would call it a refractory period, where we're locked into one particular aspect of reality, and then it's very ever so easy to do, for the time being, to take that as representative of the whole. I met this awful person, people suck. I met this Mexican person, I met this American person, this German person, and then Germany, Mexico, and so forth. Americans, you know. And so that's a refractory period. Or just life sucks, or it's just hopeless, or politics is terrible, and Buddhism is horrible, and so forth, because I met a really bad Buddhist a while back. You know? And so there it is. So how do we overcome that? Well, we've slipped into a refractory period, and we've locked onto one facet of reality. We've probably embellished it. We've almost certainly reified it. We're very likely exaggerating negative qualities and not seeing them in larger context. And so we need an antidote. And it's not putting on rose-tinted glasses, look on the brighter side, stiff upper lip, be happy. It's attend to other aspects of reality that will balance you out, get you out of that locked-in cramp, cognitive cramp or spasm. And that's what empathetic joy is about. Now, Empathetic joy, often it's translated as sympathetic, which is not bad. I just think empathetic is a bit better, because sympathy always implies something sad. Um, empathy can go positive or negative. Empathetic joy primarily is focused on, on others, cultivating that sense of resonance, that empathy towards others, taking delight in their joys and their virtues. So it is actually in the, in the Pali Canon, the Theravada tradition, this one is explicitly cultivating an emotion. The other, f- uh, the other three are not, but this one is. This is cultivating an emotion. Right? And it's empathy. It's extending that sense of self out and caring about the well-being of others. But 
there's something odd again, and I, we, didn't, we, we modern Westerners, we didn't invent this, but we certainly have done a lot with it, and that is this, this ever-so-familiar theme of self-contempt, self-loathing, low self-worth, sense of shame, and so forth. I am such an awful person, and so forth and so on. And so I am such an awful person. It's cl- clearly when there's something of an attitude, it definitely seems like there's two people in there. You know, I am such an awful person because I think about myself and I think, oh, really awful. I am so ashamed, and so forth. Like, there's two people. I, I'm so ashamed of you. you know. what, and and the, then the other one, well, what about, well, what do you think about yourself? I don't think much of you either, you know. <laughs> you know? And so if, if we can do this internally, internally, and that is not even feel a warm and affectionate sense of empathy within, if we can internally be the stern parent, stern, unloving, critical, judgmental parent within ourselves, then if we're going to do that to ourselves of bifurcating within ourselves, kind of two people and one looking down and the other, then the antidote for that would be developing internal empathy. Yes, you screwed up, but I love you anyway. You know. Yes, you screwed up, but it's forgivable, and so forth and so on. So in this regard, I introduce into this practice a theme that's very commonly taught, I think maybe still not strongly enough emphasized in the Indo-Tibetan tradition, and that is taking delight in one's own virtues, which is, a, which is itself a virtue. That's straight tsongkhapa. Right? It's not some bizarre sect of self-congratulation sect. And it's not about self. It's not thinking, what a jolly good fellow am I? What a fine blah, 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 fill in the noun. It's not that. You know? It is simply, as I can take delight in someone else's virtue, I can also take delight in my own virtue, and it's both good. And neither one is idolizing the other person or entering into narcissism with respect to oneself. Right? So that's where we'll go in this practice. really quite, quite a sweet friend and can uplift you, uplift you. Not to bring about something artificial, but to restore balance where it's been lost. Because whenever we fall into guilt, shame, depression, and so forth and so on, we may, we may be, and we may not be, but we may be attending to some aspect of reality. Certainly possible. But what is certain is that we're not attending to the whole of reality. And at that moment, we are not in a state of balance. To restore balance. Restore balance. That's very helpful. So let's find a comfortable position. may enter this practice, at least with a sense of satisfaction, of contentment, and perhaps even beyond that, with a sense of delight, of appreciation, of rejoicing. In our present opportunity to 
have the leisure and the opportunity to devote ourselves single-pointedly to the cultivation of our hearts and minds to find genuine happiness, perhaps even to venture out on and reach a path to awakening. What greater good fortune could there be than this? So in the spirit of rejoicing, taking delight, Settle your body in its natural state, your respiration in its natural rhythm. And balance your mind for a little while with mindfulness of breathing. Then as we venture into the main practice, we'll begin with an integral aspect of classic Mahayana meditation on the cultivation of bodhicitta, and that is recalling the kindness of sentient beings. Do so now in a personal way. As you direct your attention back to your childhood, even your infancy, And you move your attention along the timeline through your childhood, adolescence, through adulthood, up to the present day. 
and be very selective. Attend to the kindnesses others have shown you. Who supported you in your pursuit of hedonic well-being, provided you with food, clothing, shelter, education, medical care, and so on. As well as those who have nurtured it nurtured you, supported you, guided you in your pursuit of genuine happiness. And as you attend to these virtues, these acts of kindness, with each out-breath, breathe out a light of gratitude and breathe out a light of rejoicing in their own virtue. As you breathe out, you may even imagine this light emanating from your heart, taking on the forms of offerings, offerings of gratitude to all those who have shown you kindness.
now once again direct your awareness back to your early life. And now in the spirit of taking delight in one's own virtues, which as Tsongkhapa says is itself a virtue, is a way of increasing the merit, the power, the energy, the vitality of your spiritual practice and enhancing the power of the karma from your own virtue. Look back in time and move along the timeline to the present moment. What good have you brought to the world? What kindness have you shown to others? Alleviating others' distress, bringing them happiness. In what ways have you cultivated your own heart and mind? So that you yourself can follow the path to awakening. And breathe this light of rejoicing into your own life. Let this light fill your entire being, your body, your mind.
now direct your attention outwards once again to the world around you. And either by deliberately directing your attention to the virtues of others far and near, in the present and in the past, or simply letting your awareness be open and see who comes to mind. Those individuals, those communities who've blessed the world by alleviating the suffering of others, by serving others in the pursuit of happiness, by profoundly exploring their own inner resources, discovering liberation, discovering awakening, and inspiring us and guiding us all. With every outbreath, breathe out this light of gratitude, of rejoicing.
and release all appearances, all objects of mind. Let your awareness return to its own center, its own, its own ground. And with no object outside itself, simply being aware of itself, rest in the nature of awareness. I've been watching people practice for a while now, a few decades, and I've been able to draw some generalizations. First, in terms of getting discouraged, depressed, and so on. Sometimes this is hedonic, hedonic depression. That is, your meditation goes bad one day. Or something really unpleasant happens with another person in the environment, you get really bummed out. So it's kind of a spike, a surge, an eruption of sadness, despair, depression, and so forth. But then the episode gradually fades out, you forget about it, and you move on. Right? And then there's genuine depression that just comes in like it's just a big heavy cloud. You got like you're walking around, the cloud just wherever you go, the cloud just like your shadow. I'm going to rain on you. And so then you're looking around, okay, who done it? What's the catalyst? And the catalyst is there isn't one. You're bringing this to every situation. It's what you're offering to the world. You're offering, hello, my name's Alan. I have depression to offer you. How are you? you know? And so that's genuine depression. Right? And likewise with gratitude, a sense of rejoicing, taking delight, mudita. And that is, it too can come up in spikes. You'll notice that a person does something very kind, another person's practicing very well, or something really wonderful there. 
and then a spike of delight, rejoicing, satisfaction uh, takes place. And then, of course, it fades. It goes out. Sense of gratitude. Oh, thank you. Somebody does something really nice for you. Oh, thank you, thank you. Next day, you don't remember it at all. But, you know, today, or at least for those five minutes, oh, I'm so grateful. I'll remember you forever. What was your name again? So we get these spikes of gratitude, rejoicing coming up, and then they just fade out, like, like just a wave in the ocean. It goes, loop, and then whoop, and it's gone. And so hedonic gratitude, hedonic rejoicing. And then there's possibility of genuine gratitude, rejoicing. Where it's just where you live. It's just where you live. You just attend to reality. You wake up in the morning. And you just, have, you just wake up with a sense of gratitude, a rejoicing of appreciation. And then you venture out the door and you just see somebody moving one of those little trolleys, you know, taking care of the rooms and so forth. And that's enough to spark a sense of, oh, they're taking such good care of us. Anything can spark it. Nothing can spark it. It doesn't need a spark. It's what you're bringing just a spirit of gratitude, a spirit of rejoicing, a satisfaction, a joy. And that's just what you're bringing to the kitchen, bringing to the meditation hall, to your meditation cushion. You just bring it to the front desk and so forth, bringing it to the gym and so forth, bringing it to every encounter. This is really, really very much in the core of the whole, whole Bodhisattva way of life. Remember what Shantideva says. Whenever you encounter a sentient being, now that can happen pretty frequently. Remember? What does he say? You attend to the sentient being and think, in dependence upon you, I can achieve enlightenment. Whether it's in dependence upon your behavior, helping me develop the perfection of patience. You get a lot of help in that regard. In so many ways, in so many ways, just feeling that this is your modus operandi, this is just how you're present in the world. How can I do anything other than just be swimming in an ocean of gratitude? Because the blessings are always rising up to me. All I need to do is have the eyes of wisdom to see it and to appreciate it. So what I've witnessed, people practice Dharma over the last few decades, I've witnessed those at least for periods of their lives, and for some really quite extensively, that, for example, in a retreat, but beyond, of course, the context of a retreat, when people are just living in a spirit of gratitude, that that's just not it's just just where they're living. The practice always goes well. The practice always goes well. If that's there, then I just never worry. Oh, then you're you're going to turn out fine. It always goes well. There's no exceptions. And then there are those who are just ah. Oh. <laughs> that pretty well says it all. Um, practice is not as good as I hoped, and this thing happened over there and these people over there, they're really bugging me. And you know, I've got to tell you about this and these people did this to me. And, uh, just, and then, oh, you would, this, this last week, really, oh, it was quite difficult. These people did that. And, and, and in my childhood, this happened. And, and, <sighs> I suck, you suck, they suck, we all suck together. And whenever there's this, this kind of complaining, grumpiness, never, never quite satisfactory, you know, the practice never goes well. It doesn't matter how intelligent you are. It doesn't matter the intensity of your renunciation. It doesn't matter. 
you're screwing it up every day with a complaining, complaining, complaining. You know? So the first time I translated for His Holiness Dalai Lama was the first time he taught in the West, I believe. It was in Switzerland. I remember it well. And one of the things he said, better to find one fault in yourself than a thousand faults in other people. Now he's speaking as, I have to say here, he's speaking as a Tibetan. A great, great Lama, but also as a Tibetan. You know. And what he wasn't implying is low self-esteem. Because there's no such word in Tibetan. Self-contempt, you can't translate it into Tibetan. It's gibberish. Self-hatred doesn't mean anything. Lack of self-worth can't translate it. So when he's saying better to find one fault in yourself than a thousand in another people, another people, he's not suggesting, you know, now start debasing yourself, being bad about yourself, having low self. He's not. Would never occur in his mind. Right? Why would then you fi- find a fault in yourself? Oh, good! I found something, some an area to correct, some area, another area to improve. Hallelujah! And if somebody else points it out for me, oh, thank you, I might not have noticed that. And one more area to find greater happiness. Because if you find a fault, you can find something that can be remedied. So that's what he's talking about. Not just dumping on yourself, dumping on yourself, and thinking, therefore, you're being virtuous. You're not. You're just finding, ah, there's a problem. Good, now how do we solve it? Whereas if you find problems and a a thousand problems in other people, how exactly are you going to solve that? You find one in yourself, you really have a chance. Right? You really have a chance. Especially if you've encountered some good dharma. And by the way, all of you have. But if you find a thousand faults on other people, exactly what are you going to do about that? You could go out like, with, like, like a cowboy with a lasso. Yeah. Just, you know, get them by the neck. And say, I found a fault in you, and I'm going to fix it. Now listen up. Because I'm going to make your day. Shape up, ship out. Okay, now you can go. I found a fault in you. Listen up. Here's your fault. You better fix this or I'm going to fix you. Now, go away. Now, where's, where's the other 998? Man, that's going to be a full-time job and that's just with a thousand people. There are seven billion of them out there and they're all screwing up. At least most of them are. In other words, you've got a full-time job. And you better have a lot of lassos ready. And some of these young heifers don't want to be lassoed. They just don't want to be lassoed. You may want to lasso them and fix them, but they don't want to be fixed. So you're going to have a tough job. So either really fix one person or be incredibly geographically frustrated (laughs) by trying to fix seven billion other people and finding it's just not working out very well. Those are your choices. One or seven billion. Your Honor, I rest my case. (laughs) Enjoy your day. And I mean it. Enjoy your day. You have no reason not to. So you may as well start right now.